We get to celebrate today without any exaggeration. Seriously, as we ponder this, without any exaggeration, we get to celebrate the two most important events in human history. And without these two events, no matter how glorious the achievements of mankind look, no matter how wonderful things you and I accomplished in our life as human beings, no matter how, how many wonderful things we could see sprinkled through human history, there would be a cloud of hopeless despair and darkness over all of human history and over every man, woman, and child who's ever lived. That cloud of despair and hopelessness and then ultimately condemnation and death would rest on all mankind if it weren't for these two events. There's no mystery here. You're in the building, so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but we are looking today very briefly at both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And first for a few moments, looking at that death, and plenty of plenty of pastors and lessons and, and books and all kinds of things through the years have focused on these the recognition that in his crucifixion Jesus spoke seven things from the cross we will not cover all seven things <laughs> those of you who know me know there's absolutely no way in the world we can cover all seven things in one service but we're going to try to gather a little bit from this or, I mean from this reality of Jesus' life, that on the cross, as he was dying, he spoke several things that have very incredible power and application for us. So the first thing that Jesus spoke, if you will look at first, at chapter 23 of Luke. Jesus has just been placed on the cross. And again, I hope many of you did take time and opportunity this past week to read some of the passages that, that went through the last hours and days of Jesus leading up to these moments. We won't try to review all that, but now we're at the place where Jesus is being crucified, actively crucified. A criminal on each side also being executed with him. In verse 33, it says, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And again, we've talked about this passage many times in plenty of sermons that weren't even about Easter. We have looked at the heart of Jesus in this. And here's, here's Jesus in his death saying, Father, forgive him. And part of what I hope we gather out of this, which again, should be no mystery, but we get to acknowledge it. This is the heart of Jesus beautifully revealed at the worst moment of his life at the worst moment of his life, at the outpouring of hatred and evil and the apparent triumph of Satan against him, that one of his own disciples has betrayed him, that the very spiritual leaders of God's nation Israel have turned against Jesus 
And we see in the Gospels, and again, if you read some of those passages, where we hear and see how frequently those leaders saw Jesus perform miracles, including the resurrection of Lazarus, and everything they saw Jesus do, every miracle they saw him perform, every incredible truth they saw him speak, every time he spoke the truth about who he was and what he was here to accomplish, in each instance, it made them hate him more. And the world tells us that with each of those steps, they determined in their heart even more to kill him. So here's the religious leaders of God's nation, Israel. God has spoken prophecy to Israel through thousands of years. They have had prophet after prophet after prophet preparing them for the coming of Messiah. Every Old Testament prophet has something to say about the coming Messiah. And some of those prophecies were incredibly focused and incredibly detailed. And Jesus several times through the word says, you know what, if you knew the word, you'd know me. If you knew the words of the prophets, you'd recognize me. But that they willfully blinded themselves to how all of that applied to Jesus. And then you and I get to make sure that we don't do the same thing. That in our personal lives, we have an open heart when we come to the word of God. And even if we're already believers, we still need to protect our hearts from that kind of hardness or, or blindness. That when God says something we don't want to hear, we find a way to not hear it. That we would remain tenderhearted, we'd remain humble. A, a really important word for us, that we remain teachable. Father, you're free to teach me a new thing. You're free to challenge some area of my life that I didn't want to look at yet. But if you want to talk about it, okay, let's talk about it. And the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and the priests, the very people who handled the word of God for Israel, were ready to kill Jesus, and their hatred and their determination to kill him had been growing. And now here's Jesus being crucified. And he says this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they were doing. And I remember even as a child reading that and going, I don't know if that's true. For they do not know what they are doing. And obviously, at one level, they knew what they were doing. Nobody fooled them. They didn't think they were, they were being nice to Jesus. But at some level, they fooled themselves into believing they were protecting Israel. The high priest even says so. It's better to kill one man than to have Rome come down on us as a nation and destroy us. And in fact, the word says that that was the high priest speaking in his role as high priest prophetically by the Holy Spirit. Better that one man die to save the nation. And so they knew what they were doing. They knew they were hating the man who had done no evil, but they, they felt threatened. They believed he threatened their political existence as a nation, and they certainly felt he threatened their power, their authority, their individual standing as human beings. They felt threatened. Now, I won't ask, but imagine if you could, if I did ask you to raise your hand, how many of you would raise your hand? Have you ever felt threatened by God? I'd have to raise my hand. He, he certainly messes with my plans. <laughs> I certainly felt threatened when he called me to forgiveness in situations where I was not ready and did not want to forgive. And, and that's not just ancient history. 
I was recognizing even this week, Father, I'm staying busy to avoid listening to you. I hate to confess that, but it was real. I'm staying busy to avoid listening to you. So I had to make a choice, Father. Hope we settle down and listen. So my will and my flesh and my ego are still threatened by the work of God. So is yours. And so we have this ongoing battle that Paul even talked about that I would bring my mind and my heart and my will constantly to a fresh surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you and I will not finish that here on planet Earth. We just get to keep growing. So did they know what they were doing? Not completely. They knew they were doing wrong. They knew they were doing selfish. But they really failed to comprehend out of the blindness that, that Satan had in their thinking. They failed to comprehend two things. God has come to the planet in love for us. And we're going to kill him. God has come to the planet in love for us. And we're getting ready to kill him. They, they would have had no comprehension that that's what they were getting ready to do because I don't think they could have gotten out of bed that morning. But the second thing, they had no comprehension. We are actually enacting the fulfillment of prophecy on top of prophecy on top of prophecy because it was going to happen this way. And there are several times where Scripture says this. Once God's prophesied it, it's going to happen. But woe to the nation through whom that abuse of Israel happens, or woe to the man who betrays Jesus to make this happen. No nation, no individual was forced to do it, but God said, someone's going to choose to do it. And woe to the one for whom it's done. And now woe to the men and women who were screaming for Jesus to be crucified. When they even had an opportunity to set him free again, they even had a chance to sort of second-guess their hatred. When Pilate comes before the crowd and says, who do you want me to set free? Jesus, King of the Jews, or Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist, a terrorist, basically. And they go, we'll take the terrorist. We'll take the murderer. He's a, he's a man of the people. We'll take him. Jesus, crucify him. And it doesn't even make sense. I hope for those of you who did get to read it that you recognize evil doesn't make sense. It's irrational. It's dark. It's twisted and it's thinking. Evil doesn't make sense. Once I see the whole picture, and I, I know I've probably said this about 500 times over the past number of years, Adam and Eve don't make sense to me. Wow, look, everything is perfect here. This God who's coming to walk in the garden with us a little bit later this afternoon, he's done nothing but love us. He's done nothing but pour out. And Adam can look at Eve and go, and even brought you to me for love. And Eve can say the same thing. And, and he gave me, you, for love. And now here's the serpent who's never done anything for us. And he's saying, why don't you throw all that aside just for the maybe promise that you could be God's yourself, that you won't need him. And at least here in my post-Christian mindset, that does not make sense to me. Evil does not make sense. And yet, we choose it over and over again. Evil in your life doesn't make sense. 
Evil in my life doesn't make sense. When we knowingly choose evil, it doesn't make sense. We know too much to choose evil, but we do it sometimes anyway. And again, Paul in, in Romans 7 says that same thing. He says, I know the right thing to do, and I want to do it. But then in that moment of temptation or choice, I end up doing the evil thing. And what's God's heart toward me when I do that evil thing? And we're going to need to know this. This is the heart of God. I've prepared a way to forgive you for that. I've prepared a way to forgive you for that. So if you'll turn to John 16, turn ahead. Sorry, this is a brand new Bible. That's my excuse. <laughs> uh, but it really is a brand new Bible. A lot of these pages haven't been separated. But. And actually, that's the wrong reference, so I don't know how I wrote that down. But let's go to John 3. That's what it was supposed to be. John 3, 16, not John 16. So if you go to John 3, which again, we know this. Most of you have memorized this. In Sunday School 101, you memorized this. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. And that's a crucial point to this passage. He's not saying, you know what? I died on the cross for everybody. That's actually frequently said in scripture. Jesus died on the cross for the whole world. It says it right here. For God so loved the world. But then here's the salvation. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And here's this crucial verse. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So when this is revealed to be the heart of God and the heart of Jesus, that he sees us in sin, and Scripture tells us repeatedly, that's true for every man, woman, and child that has ever lived, that we sin, and if there's going to be any hope of relationship with God and eternal life, it's going to have to come through forgiveness. One way or another, somehow, God, a holy God, a righteous God who must judge sin, is saying, I found a way. I'm going to send my son. I love the world so much, and every man, woman, and child in the world, I'm going to send my own son to be the sacrifice for sin. And in Luke, we won't go there, but in Luke 19.10, Jesus describes, after he has invited Zacchaeus, I don't know if you remember Zacchaeus, wee little man, he was my brother. Um, <laughs> That God and I, I mean, God and Zacchaeus, were having a conversation. He said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And after Jesus had poured out his love and the offer of forgiveness and salvation, Zacchaeus said, yes, 
I'm taking that fact, I'm immediately transforming my life. And Zacchaeus said, I'm giving half of everything I own to the poor. And then if anyone I've cheated, and he had cheated many people, and if I've cheated anyone to make my wealth, I'm going to pay it back four times over. How many of you have done that? And Zacchaeus' repentance is real. And then Jesus says, today salvation has come to this home. And then he says this, he says, because the Son of God has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And, and there may be somebody in this room, there might even be a believer in this room, somebody who's already put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you struggle with the fear of God, you struggle with the fear of unforgiveness, you struggle with the belief that God is against you, and you fear him, or you avoid him. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to comprehend my heart. My heart is to find you. My heart is to save you. And, and I, I would encourage you, I, I challenge you, please examine your heart right now and consider, is that my mindset about Jesus? Is that my expectation of the heart of God and the thinking of Jesus? That when I sin, Jesus is looking to find me and rescue me and forgive me. Because if not, I need to change my thinking so that Jesus becomes the safest refuge in the universe for me when I sin. It's easier to think of going to God when I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job. Well, God, I'm looking at my track record today and I think I'm doing pretty good. Aren't, aren't we comfortable together? You're blind, but yeah. <laughs> but what he's saying is, even in the middle of your sin, come to me. You will be safe with me because my heart toward you is forgiveness. And again, it's not it's not just want forgiveness, pray to the universe forgiveness. It's come to Jesus for forgiveness. I love some of the songs we sang today, the, the old rugged cross. Um on, on the night I genuinely accepted Jesus Christ, I was a six-year-old sinner. And, and every one of you here who remembers being six knows that's true. But I recognized I needed a Savior. So I didn't have a long list of horrible sins. I just knew I was a sinner. And, and that was one of the songs, the old rugged cross, that they sang that night. Another one was At the Cross, At the Cross. Those songs are... are powerful for me. And there may be other songs and different songs for each of you that help be a part of, of how God brought you to awareness and brought you to faith. And there might not have been a song. There might have been a, a passage of scripture. There might have been a preacher. There might have been a Sunday school teacher. There might have been a mom or a dad explaining the love of God for you. But one way or another that each of us who belong to Jesus Christ, we came to that moment of faith of recognizing this is not just, I want to be forgiven. I come to Jesus who died for my sins. This is where I can be forgiven. And we'll look at that more in a minute. But that recognition, that's the heart of Jesus. And that is really clear. You go back to Luke 23 again. Let's go to verse 39. 
It is a new Bible and the print is tiny. <laughs> one of the criminals, starting at verse 39 of Luke 23, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And we know from, from the other gospels, at the beginning, both criminals were mocking Jesus. Both of them were. And somehow, one of them started re-examining his position in this mix, and he came up with a wiser perspective. But the other one answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And there was that recognition for this one, in just a few moments or a few hours, depending on how this goes, we're gonna be dead, literally. We will be dead standing in front of God. Hebrews, Hebrews 9.27 said, It is given unto man once to die, and after this, judgment. Everybody stands in front of God. And we either stand in front of God alone, which would be terrifying, or we stand in front of God with a mediator and a savior between us, which will be majestic. But he says, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And we've talked about this passage again numerous times through the years, but I love the simplicity, and I'm so glad that God included this in the Gospels. The simplicity of this moment, where Jesus doesn't say, now before we decide your fate, do you understand the, the doctrine of the Trinity? Before we decide your fate, do you really know factually and accurately when the rapture will occur? Jesus doesn't give them a doctrinal test. And it's worth recognizing he passed the doctrinal test, in a sense, for salvation in about three points. One is, I'm guilty and I deserve condemnation. You and I are guilty and we deserve condemnation. And there are moments when we understand that and recognize it. There are other moments where it's hard to believe or we don't feel that bad. But I think for most of us, if we're honest, we can recognize I am guilty and I deserve condemnation. And particularly if I were to stand in front of a holy God, maybe if I stood in front of Joe Schmuckatelli or Susan Schmuckatelli, they're, they're not as bad as me, they're worse than me. Now I'm feeling a little better. But I will stand in front of a holy God. And then I'll realize I am guilty and I deserve my condemnation. And that's what this man is recognizing in just a few words. I'm guilty. And so I hope each one of us can, can very honestly, in our heart of hearts, look at God and just acknowledge, Father, you are a holy God. And no matter how I compare to anybody else before you, I am guilty. And I deserve condemnation on my own. Now, for those who've already put their faith in Christ, we're not on our own. But we started in that position. On my own, I am guilty. And then he says the second thing. He says, Jesus, this man, 
He's good. He's innocent. But he goes deeper than that. It's not just that he's a good, innocent man in terms of a legal consideration. Because then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, and so this, this recognition of guilt. And then he recognizes Jesus has a kingdom. So that it, as we've acknowledged before, he just declared Jesus to be the Messiah, the Christ. And everything that the New Testament, I mean, everything that the Old Testament prophesies about him is wrapped up in that acknowledgement. This is the one who's coming to die for our sins. This is the Lamb of God. This is the associate and son of God. We could go through passage after passage after passage of the Old Testament that I know we've, we've done portions of it before. I wish we had some Sunday afternoon, maybe we'll do this. I would like to do like about a four or five hour thing where we just went through every prophecy of the Old Testament that points to who Jesus is. It's majestic and it's eye-opening and it shatters human limitations. And it makes it clear that Jesus is actually the creator God. Somehow he's still the son and the father and the son talk and, and they associate in the Holy Spirit. And there's this father, son, spirit, trinity that is mysterious but true. And the Old Testament clarifies all that in beautiful ways. And even talks about the fact that not only will he die, he'll be resurrected. And so when he's looking at Jesus and saying, I'm guilty, but you're innocent, and you're the Messiah. And then he basically says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He pleads for Jesus' mercy. And I'm glad Jesus didn't say, Evidently, you haven't read the Romans Road because there's four points to the Romans Road. <laughs> I love the Roman Road. I memorized it when I was in Navigators. And it's real helpful to walk people through an understanding of their sin and their need for salvation. So I'm not mocking the Roman Road. Please understand. But Jesus went to a simpler thing. He says, I'm looking at your heart and I see everything I need to see. I see everything I need to see to make this promise, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's incredible. So that right here, while Jesus is busy dying on the cross, he's doing, he's doing the ministry that his death is for. So Jesus could have said, you know what? Too bad you're not around when Paul does this. Too bad you're not around when, when John and the, and the rest of those scary cats who ran for the hills when I was arrested. Too bad you're not going to be around when they get busy doing the right thing. Jesus said, you know what? I'm dying for this very purpose. How joyful, and I, I hope we comprehend this. How joyful for Jesus to go, Father, I brought one with me. I didn't even wait. I didn't wait until I poured out my spirit on the disciples. I brought one with me. And he and the Father would be hugging and rejoicing and jumping up and down and celebrating, and angels would be jumping up and down and celebrating, going, this is the beginning of the whole thing. The church of God, the church of Jesus Christ has already been formed. This guy will never have to put anything in the offering plate, but he's already a part of the church. 
And so that recognition, this is the heart of Jesus, Father, forgive them. And then he turns it and applies it very individually. You and I, there are several people in scripture that I, that I personally find value in saying, that's me. The woman caught in adultery who deserved to be stoned to death, that's me. The jailer who realized his life had just blown up in, in front of him, he goes, what must I do to be saved? That's me. A guilty man dying under a rightful condemnation for his sin. That's me. And I, and I trust that you get it. That's you. And that we get to say, now I know the heart of God toward me. And if there is anybody in the room who has never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I, I'm really praying that the Holy Spirit would help you to hear the heart of Jesus, that this is not a religious institution deciding you're not good enough to join. This is the God of the universe going way out of his way to die for you because nobody's good enough to join. And he's willing to do this to invite everyone in. And later, passage after passage of the New Testament makes that clear. Whosoever will can call on the name of this Savior. Whosoever will. He doesn't say if you're good enough and you call on the name of Jesus. If you're religious enough, it's just whosoever will. That, that the scummiest sinner that we would go, God, never him. <laughs> Definitely not her. And what God is saying is from his heart, he's saying, yes, even him, even her, even Reg, I'll take anybody. If they say and mean what they say in choosing myself. That they confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. Come on in. Now, this guy didn't have the resurrection yet to believe it. But he chose Jesus. Threw himself, threw himself on the mercy of Jesus. And so again, we get to recognize this is a package deal. The, the Savior who would pray for the forgiveness of the very people who were forgiving him immediately turns around and gathers one to take with him who just moments earlier really was mocking him. And again, just ponder that for a second. Moments earlier, this man was mocking Jesus. And there was some kind of humble recognition of reality, and he changed his mind. And one thing I love about the Word of God and love, love about the heart and the mind of God for your life and for my life is God saying, if I see in your heart that you turned a corner, I spin everything on a dime. We immediately change our relationship. You repent, we're immediately good. And passage after passage of scripture makes that real clear. There's no get over it time for God. Jesus didn't need to get over it for a while. You know, let me, let me sort of absorb and process what you were saying 10 minutes ago, because man, I'm a little ticked at you right now. Maybe we'll, if I'm still alive, we'll talk in a few minutes. It was an immediate turn. I see in your heart that you mean what you're saying, you're in. And, and I like the way he says it because he says, truly. Some passages uh, in James says, verily. But what it, what it all means is Jesus is saying, I promise you I'm telling a reality. I'm telling a truth. I'm telling something that is rock solid for you to get a handle on and believe in. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And I don't know, you know, Jesus mother was there in front of him. I hope this man's mother was there too. 
So that after all her years of praying for her criminal son to repent and change, that she could watch the God of the universe come to be the Savior, inviting her son to spend eternity with God. It's like, wow. What a way to get all those prayers answered. And then we have one other thing that Jesus said again. But one of the last things Jesus said before he died, it is finished. And there, there are many layers to this, I think. I, I don't think it's just one simplistic thing. And in fact, I think we could go through the whole New Testament and we could look at what all got done in the death of Jesus Christ. You know, well, it was a sacrifice for my sin. Um, so that means he won my forgiveness. Oh, and then I also get adopted as the son or daughter of God. Oh, and then I have power over sin. Oh, and then I'm actually seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father so that I have this place of intimacy with God. And I've been declared righteous and holy and clean. And we can just keep going through the New Testament. And now, please don't, please don't, um, Please don't see this flimsy or cheap. But if we can look at each one of those things, that is Jesus is enduring the wrath of God, the tiniest part of his death, and, and this is not blasphemous, the tiniest part of his death was the cross. The tiniest, easiest part of his death was the physical death. The tiniest part of his death was the Jews and the Romans ending his human life. Because Isaiah 53 tells us that what his sacrifice was really about was the wrath of the Father that crushed his soul as he took on the chastening for our sins. That the Father's wrath is completely and as Jesus is getting ready to yell this, he's going, done, check, done, 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 done. And all those other things in the New Testament, he's going, I got it all done, Father. Now in your hands, I commend my spirit. My journey, my mission, the whole reason I came to planet Earth is finished in this death. And we have, I, I know I've shared this before, and I was just reading about it again this week. We have, from, from the Middle East, we have Greek clay tablets that were about business done between people. And in fact, I read a new one that they found a baker that is, as his people would finish paying for whatever they purchased from the bakery, he would give them a clay tablet. And it was this phrase,
me, to tell us die. That Greek phrase means paid in full, paid in full. It's a financial term, paid in full. And that Jesus yelled that from the cross as he finished his mission. And, and so part of what you and I get to recognize is when the enemy, the accuser is there to go, you're not completely forgiven. Oh God, you know what? God forgave you for everything right up until you got saved. But boy, have you screwed up since then. <laughs> God forgave everything right up until this moment or that moment when you were sincere and you were good. But boy, have you screwed up so bad that now your forgiveness is not a done deal. Satan is a liar and he hates you. Satan is a liar and he hates God and he hates all those who God loves. And we get to recognize, I'm either gonna believe the accuser, the serpent, just like Adam and Eve did, look where that got us, or I believe my father, when over and over again he says in his word that my forgiveness is a done deal, it's finished. And so this recognition that Jesus dying on the cross meant something profound. So in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, if you have not memorized this, I would encourage you to memorize this. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That he who knew no sin became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. What an incredible exchange. And there are so many passages that are about this exchange that we, we bring our sin to God. Colossians 2 tells us that our certificate of debt was completely paid for at the cross so thoroughly that now that certificate of debt, what we owe God, has been completely removed. And now in place of that, we are righteous and holy and clean. What an incredible exchange that we now wear the righteousness of Christ in place of our own sin while we're still sinners, while we are still unfinished, that this incredible exchange is a real thing for believers to understand and choose. And, and we can't go into all the depth and details of this, but it's not even just our standing that he says, here's this thing before you were a dead thing spiritually. You were spiritually dead. And now my son has come to dwell within you. You have the very life and power of Jesus Christ flowing within you. Again, I know many of you have memorized this. That's a strange L, but that is an L. Where Paul makes this proclamation, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I. Paul's getting ready to reveal an incredible truth for your life and my life as believers. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He's not speaking allegorically. He's not just saying, well, you know what? I really honor Jesus in my heart. There would be no power in that. Jesus himself has come to dwell in me in some mysterious but real way. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And, and there are some of you, I know, because as long as there's at least two of us in the room, at least two of us are struggling. But that we get to recognize there is some area of my life where I'm still fighting out of my own power. There's some area of my life where I'm not yet matured 
into comprehending and applying the very life and the thoughts and the presence and the reality of Jesus Christ himself into the battles of my life and my day. And that I get to choose that in faith. I choose Jesus Christ living in me to be my power and authority in this area. Some of you get to say that maybe for the first time in your life. I choose Jesus Christ dwelling in me to be my life and my power as I address this area of my life. And by the way, you'll never be finished. But you get to grow and you get to go further. And so here we see in just these three things, Father, forgive them. Today you will be with me in paradise. It is finished. We see the heart and the mind and the finished work of Jesus Christ saying, why am I going through all this? Because I'm the creator God. And when I made all you billions of people, I made you for love relationships. I did not make you just to watch you succumb to the enemy and be lost for eternity. So now I'm going to make a way so that whosoever will can call on me and I will rescue you. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so I hope that each one of us will recognize if I've already chosen that, I want to grow deeper into the power of this life born within me. If I've not yet chosen it, what am I waiting for? This is life. This is eternal life. I know of several people today that are walking with God, faithfully walking with God and continue to grow, who prayed to receive Jesus when they were four years old, five years old, six years old. Some of, some of them were in this room. I know others that prayed to receive Jesus Christ in their teens, others in their 20s. I know of at least one man that prayed to receive Jesus Christ on his deathbed in his mid, no, in his late 80s. And just like the thief on the cross, that Jesus would go, that's why I did it, come on in. So your age, your experience, your sin, there is literally no excuse for any of us to say no to this all. So I, I pray that you're praying that if you've never received Jesus Christ, Easter is such a perfect day to do that. That's right. Every day is a perfect day, but what a majestic day to do it. Second yeah. Corinthians 6 says, Behold, today is the day of salvation. Yeah. And when Paul wrote that, he goes, especially Easter in the year 2021. <laughs> so you and I get to recognize this, if you have not yet chosen Jesus Christ, and I pray that you would have the wisdom and the humility to go, yes, I'll take that. I, I trust in this Christ, this Messiah who died for me. I will take eternal life that's offered. Now, that just starts a journey. And that's where this passage comes in because now he will live within me so my life will keep growing and changing. It's not fire insurance, it's a life change. And now with that, with that recognition of life change, part of what he promises, your life will have purpose. Your life will have, in fact, it's the purpose I originally designed you for. Those purposes will start to mature and unfold. Now, I want to close 
We'll turn to Matthew 28. We didn't have a full Bible reading this morning, so here it is. In Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear, for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. Again, here's one of the most majestic sentences in, in any language. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly. Tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, where you will see him. Behold, I have told you. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran and reported to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word for my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see you. Now, while they were on the way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and still is to this day. And I thought about those soldiers because the soldiers were paid to spread a lie. But the thing is, they fainted because they saw an angel of God. And so they might have accepted the money and they might have gone and told a lie. But every night they'd be laying on their deathbed going, oh my gosh, I know what really happened. Oh my, I know what really happened. And I would like to believe that some of those soldiers ended up one day showing up at some little gathering of crazy Christians that instead of being showing up to arrest them, he said, I'm not here to arrest you guys. Uh, can you tell me about Jesus one more time? But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some were doubtful. And again, how... How beautiful and truthful that the Word of God lets us know that right in the face of all this miraculous stuff, humans can still doubt. So I know I've asked, I'm not going to do it now. I know I've asked for raising of hands in the past of how many people have seen God perform a miraculous healing, either in your life or the life of someone around you. And practically every hand went up. And then if I were to ask for a show of hands, and how many people still had moments of doubting God after that? I, I haven't asked that question, but every hand would go up. It would have to if we're honest. We have moments of doubt. And here, after seeing Jesus and dealing with Jesus, they're just, what is this about? 
And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And again, Father, forgive them. Today you will be with me in paradise. It is finished. All of that reveals the heart of Jesus toward us as sinners. But now that we've put our faith in him, here's, here's the heart of Jesus toward us. I am with you always. He is risen. Let's pray. Amen. Father, just like the disciples, we are, we are in a constant battle against our ignorance and our distractibility, our confusion, our earthly limitations, to grow a larger, truer vision of this majestic truth. To keep seeing these things in deeper and more powerful ways. And Father, I pray that none of us would just go have a wonderful Easter dinner and forget about this. But that our, our day would be sprinkled with moments of pondering. That we would be Mary and, and the other Mary and the other Mary. That we would be with them as they see the angel sitting on the stone announcing that you are not here, Jesus. You are risen. That we would, we would be with John and Peter as they run to the grave. And they run in and John sees Jesus, your linen cloth folded and no one there. No body corrupted. Jesus, your resurrection was necessary. First of all, because it was prophesied, so it had to come true. But it was also necessary, Father, as your seal, that Jesus had pleased you and so you raised him true to your word above every name, power, and authority that had ever been named. Where he now sits at your right hand as head of this church and head of the entire church through human history. Jesus, help us to worship you more. Help us to take these things personal. To recognize that when you forgive me, you love to forgive me. You've already paid the price for this forgiveness. You're not stingy with it. You're not grudging with it. You are generous with forgiveness because it's already paid for. I just have to be wise enough to run to you. Each of us wise enough to run to you. And Father, if there are anybody, any man, woman, or child in the room who's not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, that we acknowledge those of us who already know you, we acknowledge that we are not more worthy than them for this salvation. We deserve condemnation, but we pray for them, that they would comprehend the incredible offer that Jesus died on the cross and was then resurrected as the power to show that his death was effective, that he won all these things for us, starting with forgiveness, but then ending with eternal adoption as sons and daughters reigning with you forever. Jesus, you won all of this because you have a heart of tenderness and love for us. Help us to be responsive to that. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.